Romans 9, 6 through 13. It says this. This is the Word of God. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all Israel are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived a child by one man, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father, we do ask for your help as we come into this text. God, help me to preach your word with clarity, with soundness, that your people might understand, that the lost might be saved. God, I pray that I would preach not merely my ideas, but your truth, that you would open our hearts to receive your truth. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach to you this morning on this text, and I'm going to just grab a line from the text as my title, God's Purpose of Election. God's Purpose of Election. D. James Kennedy once posed this thought. He said, imagine that you have a hundred-foot chasm to cross. And that chasm, you look down, there's a 5,000 foot drop. And you are given an incredible rope with which to cross this chasm. The rope has been engineered. Scientists have tested it. It is proven to hold up to 2,000 pounds of weight. You're given 50 feet of this rope. Now remember, how, how wide is the chasm? 100 feet. You're given 50 feet of this incredible rope. You have a problem, don't you? As you look across that chasm, that 5,000 foot drop, the reality that you must cross it, your friend offers a solution. They say, hey, I've got, uh, I've got this thread. Matter of fact, we can unroll this this thread, and uh, come up with 50 feet. Let's tie the thread to the end of this rope, and now you have 100 feet with which you can cross. Would you cross? No. All right, 
So 50-50, not a good look. Let's change it up. Let's say that you've got 90 feet of this incredible rope to cross 100 feet of chasm. And you're only going to use 10 feet of thread. Are you more confident? Can you cross? Well, how about 99 feet of incredible rope and only one foot of thread? Would you trust it? Can you cross it? Or will the thread break? Look, Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, if only one thread of my salvation comes from me, I am ruined. Look, I want to tell somebody this morning that your salvation is not 50% God's work and 50% your work. It's not 90% God's work and 10% your work. Your salvation today is not 99% God's work and 1% your work. If it was, you would not be saved. Because your faith is no more than a thread. Salvation is 100% God's work. From the beginning to the end, your salvation today is the power of God. Now, someone might say, well, what about my faith? Isn't that something? Well, yes. And praise God for it. As a matter of fact, without faith, nobody here will see the kingdom of God. You must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to stand before God, be accepted by God, and be part, a recipient of eternity. If you're not a Christian today, I want you to know that you, like me, we are born sinners. Born into iniquity. And as a result, the, the, the gates of heaven have been closed against us. And in His place, God has cast His judgment upon us, now passive, and one day it will be His active judgment. And that is the end of our story, if it were not for that newborn king born in a manger. God sent His Son to die. He was born to kill sin. How did He do it? Well, Jesus lived a life of perfection. He lived a life of holiness before God. Jesus was God, wrapped in human flesh. And when Jesus died on the cross, God said Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for your sin. And God placed the judgment for your sin and my sin onto Christ. And He bore the weight of God's wrath. And rose from the dead, and God says, all who believe in Jesus Christ, all who trust in Jesus Christ, I'm going to count his righteousness as your righteousness. And I'm going to count his death on the cross as your hell. And so we believe. So you are saved this morning by Jesus only. And if you're an unbeliever or not a Christian or not sure that you're saved, I'm inviting you right now to Throw yourself into the mercy of God in this story of Jesus Christ and find in Him all that you need 
for forgiveness of sins and for life forever with God. Not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to His mercy. And if you have trouble believing, look to Christ, and Christ will give you the ability to believe. Amen? But check this out. Check this out. When I said, praise God for your faith, all of you guys said amen. Praise God for your faith. Praise God for your faith. Yeah, there we go. Well, why do we say amen for that? At that? We can only say amen at that statement if faith itself is a gift from God. Otherwise, I praise me for my faith. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I praise you for having faith in God. But if faith is something that God gave you, it's a gift, then we praise God for it. You see, yes, faith is necessary for salvation. But the question I want to look at right now is, why do you have faith? And the answer, according to Romans 9, is because God unconditionally elected you. It was his choice that you would have faith. Not one thread of our salvation is dependent on us. It began, according to this chapter, with God. It began with God's choice. Now, Charles Spurgeon, in his day, preaching 150 years ago, talking about the pulpits in the churches in his day, said that it is high treason to preach the doctrine of election. And I don't think, I don't think things have changed a whole lot over 150 years. People don't want to preach the doctrine of election because people want to preach things that are practical and warm and make you feel good. You know, we want to go to church and just get a good feeling and give me a little piece of nugget, something I can work with, something I can do to make my life better and have a best life now. And so we avoid these doctrines. Why, how is this practical? If we, if we preach the doctrine of election this morning... How is this practical for the people of God? That's what they would say. I want to say this. It is immensely practical. It is immensely practical. Everything that God has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture is for us. And it matters for our life. It's practical. And if it wasn't, he wouldn't have told us. So we can trust that it's practical. I want to show you this morning... How so? How, how is this practical? Well, it boils down to this question. Will God fulfill his promises to us? That's the question that we begin with. Will God fulfill his promises to us? Now, if you're like me, we want God to fulfill his promises. We want to believe that the promises that have been given to us in Scripture by God will be accomplished in our life that we will make it to heaven, that we will be vindicated over and against 
those who have wronged us and those who have mocked us for this faith, that we will be vindicated with Christ, that we will be glorified, that we will see the glory of God, that we will celebrate the wonder of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, that we would live forever in happiness with God where there are no tears and there is no suffering, and that even today, when I suffer, that all things will work together for my good. But how can we trust these promises? Like, on what basis do we believe that God is going to fulfill these promises to us? You see, it's challenging for us because we look at ourselves and we recognize that, man, my faith struggles sometimes. I struggle. I don't do enough good to secure these promises. You know, some people think that maybe they do enough good, and therefore, God will accomplish His promises to them. But others say, man, I am lost. I could never do enough good. The, uh, others are, are, are looking at their, their wandering hearts and their fickle faithfulness and their unsteady souls, and they say, if, if the promises of God are based on anything that I can put out, then I have no hope that these promises will be accomplished. You see, our problem, if we don't get this figured out, is this. We're going to be tempted in one of two directions. On one hand, we'll be tempted toward pride, believing that we do good, therefore God will fulfill His promises to us. But on the other hand, we'll be tempted to despair, as we look at ourselves, and we'll say, I have no confidence that God will deliver his promises. Today in Romans 9, we see this earth-shattering truth, and I want you to see it, because it is going to transform the way that you think of the promises of God. It will take your understanding of God's promises and turn them inside out and upside down and you will be standing on a foundation that is so rock solid, nothing can shake the promises of God in your life. I want to make a statement, and then I want to spend the rest of our time together explaining the statement from this passage. Here's the statement. Since God works through election and not my effort, His promises to me will be accomplished. Let me say that, say that again. Since God works through election and not my effort, His promises to me will be accomplished. Has God's word failed? Well, verse 6 is a statement that is answering that question, has God's word failed? Now, I want you to see how Romans 8 and Romans 9 are hinged together with this question. In Romans 8, if you remember our, our sermons through Romans 8, just read it on your own this afternoon if you missed it. Romans 8 is chock full of promises from God. Wonderful promises of adoption and sonship and eternity and His providential care and guidance and watchfulness over every minor detail in life, working all things for your good. 
Romans 8, promises. And then we get into Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, where Paul brings up this question of unbelieving Jews. And this presents a problem. Because God had made promises to Israel. And if not every Israelite makes it to heaven, that begs a question. Has God's word failed? Has God's word, has God's promises to Israel failed? And if God's promises to Israel have failed, then why do you think you can trust the promise-making God of Romans 8? That's the question we're facing. You with me? So Paul says, no. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. Paul says, no. God has not failed in his promises to Israel. Verse 6. But, but, meaning verse 1 through 5. But even though, Paul's saying, even though I'm in anguish over the fact because my brother Israelites have rejected Jesus Christ, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Don't get it twisted. How so? This is what he does. He, 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 he explains from the Bible, gives us two different analogies, examples from the Old Testament to show his point, that God's word has not failed. How so? Well, Paul's reasoning is not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Let's, let's just pause for a second. I assume most of us, I know not all of us, but most of us were born in the United States of America. When you're born in the United States of America, as long as your parents are citizens, I think even if your parents are not citizens, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know like immigration laws and all that, but if you're born here, you are a citizen of what country? The United States of America. What if you grow up and you hate the country? You grow up and you are like the biggest anarchist the world has ever seen. Do you realize you're still a citizen of the United States of America? All right? So when the Jews were born into Israel, they were a citizen of Israel. But what about those Jews who were, um, I don't want to get this twisted with American politics, so move on from my analogy. <laughs> they were anarchists against God. All right, what if they were? Are they part of true Israel? Are they part of the true people who are the promised receivers of God? And Paul is saying that it's never been the case. It's never been the case that just because you were born into Israel means that you're going to make, make it to heaven. It's always been the case that God saves through faith. And the, Paul's made this so clear, going all the way back to, Rome, uh, to Abraham. And so he says that within Israel as a whole, all the citizens of Israel, there's always been this circle, the smaller circle of true Israel, regenerate, believing Jews and Gentiles who would come into the faith. So who is true Israel? Well, we could say, and I think this is, this is accurate, we could say that it is the church. Today we could 
We could talk about true Israel as being the church. Well, how so? Well, Paul in Romans chapter 4, verse 13 says that the promise that was given to Abraham and to his offspring, which according to chapter 4, verse 16, is us. We are the offspring of Abraham. All those who have faith in God, he says the promise is received by faith. And so those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are then children of Abraham. Paul in uh, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16 then calls the church the Israel of God. So I think that's, that is one broad application of who is true Israel. But I think Paul has a little bit of a more narrow focus here in Romans 9. Paul's looking at his brother Israelites. And he's saying that there are some, there's a remnant that are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have Israel and then you have true Israel the Jews who believe, who are part of the church. The Israel of God. Now, to put this bluntly, what he's saying is not all descendants of Abraham are in heaven. All right? And then what he does is he goes to the Old Testament and he preaches from the Old Testament. And he shows two Old Testament examples of the fact that this has always been the case. That's what he's doing. Keep in mind, don't forget the big purpose, to show that God's word hasn't failed. That what God is doing now is no different than what he's always done, you see? So let me walk through these two examples with you. The first one is this, Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac, not Ishmael. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, this is going back to a very important story in the Old Testament when God called Abraham, gave Abraham a promise, and the promise included that you are going to have descendants that are as numerous as the stars. Problem. Abraham was an old man, and his wife, who was 75 years old, was barren, and he had no kids. So how is Abraham going to receive this promise? You see the problem? Will God keep his word? Will God keep his promise? Well, at first, when Sarah was 75, Abraham looked at his wife and he said, I don't think so. And Abraham took matters into his own hands. Literally. He took Hagar, his wife's servant, and he made a baby with her. And that baby's name was Ishmael. Fifteen years later, Sarah's now what, 90? And God comes and says, about this time next year, you're going to have a son. The son of the promise was born, Isaac. You see, church, there are two kinds of children. There are children of the flesh, and there are children of the promise. Children of the flesh are people who say, I, I need to become the catalyst for God's promise. 
God has made me a promise, and it is up to me to make sure that happens. Ishmael. Children of the promise are those who say, the promises of God can only be fulfilled by God. And I'm trusting Him and relying on Him. Church, are you a child of the promise or are you a child of the flesh? Are you trusting in your own works and what you can contribute to your salvation? Or are you a recipient of God's promise and a child of the promise, believing that God is the one who has to fulfill this promise to you and that you can do nothing to earn it? And God will fulfill his his promise to you. He will. Only God can deliver on his promises. And what a promise keeper he is. Amen? So that's the first analogy. But then he goes to a second analogy from the Old Testament, which even hits harder. Jacob, not Esau. Look at verse 10. He says, and not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived uh, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, well, by one man, what, what he's saying here is he's saying that these, these were by one man's act, meaning they were twins. Are you following with me? That's what he's saying. So twins, two babies in the womb at the same time. That's what twins are. In case you didn't know. Now, Rebecca, Rebecca and Isaac, same mom, same dad, both children of Abraham, both in line for the promise of God. Though, verse 11, they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, let's test your knowledge of the patriarchs here. The promise of God, the covenant initially came to Father Abraham, and Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob. Why do you say Jacob and not Esau? Isn't that interesting? You could have said Esau, but we don't say that, do we? We say Abraham, Isaac, and... But wait a second. I don't know if you care about the royal family as much as I do. Um... But I do know the way it works. When King Charles passes away, Prince William will become uh, the king, right? Not Prince Harry. Why? He's the oldest. <laughs> that's, that's the only reason. He's the oldest. In this ancient world, that's, that was their custom. The, the oldest was the recipient of, you know, whatever the inheritance was. And in this case, we're talking about the promise of God, the the one through whom the the Messiah is going to come, the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. It's going through the oldest, all right? And that's always the way God works. Or I'm sorry, that's always the way culture works. 
really said that in, in the wrong way because of what I wanted to say was it's not always the way God works. You see, the Bible says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and those despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that, listen to this, so that no one may boast before him. If you are weak, say amen. Amen. If you are foolish, say amen. Amen. If if you are nothing in this world, say amen, 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 amen. Jacob. Why Jacob? And not Esau. And by the way, we're not just talking about a recipient here of the Abrahamic covenant, we clearly, in the context, we're talking about salvation. Salvation. God chose Jacob for salvation and not Esau. Why? Is it because Jacob had faith in God? Well, Jacob certainly did have faith in God. Without faith, no one will see God. Was it because of Esau's wickedness? You know, he sold his birthright. He was a man of the flesh. Well, Jacob also sinned. He was a deceiver, and God knew all of these things would happen. Why did Jacob, pre-birth, receive this choice? Well, let's establish some ground rules in verse 10. Number one. Jacob and Esau shared the same bloodline. They were brothers. They were twins. Number two, this took place before they were born, pre-birth. And number three, pre-actions, before they had done anything good or done anything bad in this world. It says that God elected Jacob and not Esau. Why? Well, verse 11 tells us that, here's the purpose, that God's purpose of election might continue. Well, what is election? This past November, Marylanders went into the booth and elected Westmore to be our next governor. That's what election is. Election is choosing somebody. But even, even like that is an inadequate illustration for this. Because it's not as if we are all compelling and competing choices. And God just, out of the bunch, chooses some and not others. No, we don't even have a blank slate at birth. God's election to save is more like this. Imagine a bunch of men throwing rocks at you, and you are choosing to show mercy to some. Now, you might say, well, this is before they had done anything good or bad, but we've already established in the book of Romans that we are born rebels against God. We're born in iniquity. So their their behaviors have yet to be seen, yes, good or bad. Their behaviors have yet to be seen, but they were both going to be born or were conceived in sin, and God elects one and not the other. Why? Why? Well, he says, is so that the purpose of election might continue. Somebody say continue. 
continue, continue. That means it's been going. It's, it's not that it just began here. But he's saying this is the way it's always been. And this is the way it still is. Meaning when God chose Abraham, he elected him unconditionally. When God chose Isaac, he elected him unconditionally. When God chose Jacob, he elected him unconditionally so that his purposes of election might continue. When God, prior to your birth, all right, prior to your actions, according to Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, God not only knew he was going to create you, but God chose you before you even had faith. Meaning, your salvation, yes, have you noticed how Paul has so said the importance, uh, talked about the importance of faith through Romans? That's been the theme from Romans 1 to 8. Faith, 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 you must have faith. But now he's going a step before that. And he's saying it's not even about your faith. Yeah. It's about the fact that God elected you. Yeah. Unconditionally chose you. It's the way he's always done it. He works through election. Your salvation, therefore, depends on God's decision. Look at the text. Jacob, he says, I have loved. Jacob, did he deserve it? No, not any more than you or I. We love God because God first loved us. Oh, I am amazed that I'm loved by God. Are you amazed that you are loved by God? Does that amaze you that God set His love upon you? Does it fill you with awe and gratitude? Does it fill you with praise? Because listen, if God had not loved me first, let's do the logic here. Therefore, I would have never loved God. Praise Him for the fact that he loved you. Stand in awe. Never take your salvation for granted until the day that you died for all of eternity. Just stand in awe of the fact that God set his affections on you. What, a, what kind of God would love somebody who's a rebel and a sinner against him and just determined to save that individual no matter what? What a saving God he is. Amen? And then the next line causes us to fall on our knees in, in humility and trembling in infinite wonder of God's grace to you. Esau, I hated. Well, well, well God is love. So how can God say, I, I hated Esau? Some theologians, to make this more palatable, say, well, it means that God loved Esau less. But that's not the context of Malachi chapter 1, where Paul is coming from. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, verse 3, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. 
and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Family, that doesn't sound like love less. That's utter rejection. You see, God is love. But because God is love, the very nature of His love means that He must hate sin. Notice in Malachi 1, He calls Esau the wicked country. Yes, Esau, a a, a wicked man from birth, born in sin, and his actions were clearly seen as he grew older and rebelled against God, and he was a harsh man, and he was about his flesh. And then you, you might come along and say, well, wait a second, so was Jacob. Jacob himself was a deceiver. Jacob himself was a sinful man. That's exactly the point. God said that before birth, Jacob would become a recipient of his mercy. And Esau would be a recipient of his judgment. Now, two big misconceptions with this doctrine. Number one, our choice doesn't matter. Misconception. Your choice does matter. And you must choose Christ. You must. Your faith in Christ matters for your soul. The doctrine of election does not cancel the call for us to turn in faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith, I'll say it again, it is impossible to see God. Everybody in hell is somebody who is a rejecter of God. And everybody in heaven is somebody who didn't deserve it, saved by the grace and mercy of God, and they are someone who had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, all right? How does God's election coexist with our responsibility? How is it possible to say that God chose to save this person and not that person? Yet we are responsible to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I looked up Tom Schreiner, who I think is one of the most brilliant living theologians of our day, on this question. And this is what he said. He said, the correlation between divine sovereignty and human freedom is a mystery that is beyond our comprehension. It's a mystery. It's a mystery beyond our comprehension. You can't understand everything about God? Well, welcome to faith. Spurgeon was once asked, he was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty with human responsibility? And Spurgeon looked at the man and he was confused. He said, I don't have to. And they said, why? And he said, because I never have to reconcile friends. What he meant is, when we see this in the truth, God is completely sovereign even over our salvation. That is our friend, and that is a friend of the other truth, that we are responsible before God for the decisions we make, for the actions we make, 
and for what we do with Jesus Christ. And we need not try to reconcile the two. My plea with you today, my plea is to just take God at his word. Just take him at his word. Try not to reconcile, friends, but trust him for his grace and for his mercy. Another big misconception is that this hurts evangelism. The doctrine of election hurts evangelism. Well, who, who will forget the testimonies that we heard this morning? Amen? I'll never forget 16-year-old Ayana's testimony in which she said, she got to this crisis moment, what if I'm not one that God chooses? Wait a second. The doctrine of election played into your conversion experience. What happened there? Well, what happened was this. Ayana was, had believed that she had to do something good in order to be saved, that she had to work for it, that she had to earn it. And it wasn't until she came to this crisis moment of the reality that it is God who saves, not her, and that she cannot save herself. And that moment brought her to this moment of crisis in which she asked this question, wait a second, if it is God who saves, and if it is God who chooses who saved, then that means that I might forever be shut out of heaven. Oh, and ironically, in that moment of turmoil, she was brought to the brink of salvation. Don't you understand that for every one of us who are saved, for every one of us, we all get to this crisis moment where we realize I am damned before God. I'm, I, I'm, 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 I'm dead meat. There's nothing I can do. God is too holy and I'm too much of a sinner. Friend, if that is you right now, you are on the brink of salvation. Look to Christ and have faith. Look, don't forget that Romans chapter 9 on election leads to the greatest evangelism chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 10. And Paul was fully expecting unbelievers to be reading Romans chapter 9 so that they could get to Romans chapter 10, so that the church that he's writing to could get to Romans chapter 10, where he says in verse 1, it's my, it's my, it's my heart's desire that they might be saved. So please take the gospel to them. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You see, the doctrine of election was never meant to keep us from evangelism. But rather, the doctrine of election is why we do evangelism. We, we look to Christ in our salvation, and what we see is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. No, election doesn't deter evangelism. Election strengthens evangelism. God's electing power means that God has the power to save the hardest soul. Can God save the one who is a rebel against him? 
Can God melt a heart of stone? Yes. Yes. Why? How do we know that? It's because their salvation is not ultimately their choice. It's God's. And when God wants to arrest a soul, he will. So church, be evangelists, believing that God will save and has the power to do so. Because your salvation was God's idea. That means that God is the ground for your salvation. He is the catalyst. He is the initiator. He is the achiever. And he is the finisher. Election doesn't keep people from salvation, saints. But this is why people get saved. Okay, so now how is all of this practical as it relates to this purpose that we see of election? What is the purpose? What are we told here? How do, how do, what are we going out of here with? Well, purpose of election in verse 11 is connected with the unfailing word in verse 6. And that's connected with purpose in Romans 8.28. All things work according to, uh, for our good according to God's purpose. Meaning, God will never fail. What he's saying is, is, is that God has always been a God who accomplishes his purposes. And if he wills it, it will happen. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. In 1990, the Tower of David in Venezuela was, uh, or began construction, broke ground. By 1993, the tower had reached uh, 45 floors. At that time, it had no electricity, no windows, no elevators, no running water. And the investor whom the tower was named after, David Brillenborg, passed away. The government continued to work on the tower to try to finish it, but in 1994, a bank crisis brought construction on, on the tower to a screeching halt. Now, today, that tower sits with no windows, no balcony, uh, balcony rails, uh, no electricity, no water. Though up to 5,000 squatters at one time have lived in the tower, the tower is unfinished. They ran out of resources. They ran out of their ability to finish the tower, and it sits as a modern ruin, a post-apocalyptic mockery, according to one news outlet. A work that was started, but never finished. I wonder, church, how many of you are glad for the fact that the one who started your work never ran out of resources. And he will never run out of resources. I wonder if you can praise God. Because God never ran out of patience with you. I wonder how many of you can rejoice because he who started the work will bring it to completion. 
That's the point here. We can trust God's work. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So therefore, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the point of Romans 9. Will the, the God of Romans 8 fulfill His promises? Well, what Paul's saying is this, is the electing God of Romans 9, the initiating God of Romans 9 is the same promise-making God of Romans 8. And so you can count on Him. You can count on Him. He will come through. He will finish what He started. And so we can just simply say, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. With great joy, the text says, to the only one, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, be majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to take you at your word. Help us to believe. Help us to have faith. God, I pray that we would not just merely have faith in our faith, but we will have faith in you, our initiator, the one who chose us. God, as we go through times of suffering, as we go through times of trials, difficulty. May this word remind us and encourage us of the fact that you who started the work will bring it to completion. That every single promise you've made to us, we can count on. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.